And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. Who is Yevgeny Prigozhin? And why should we care? That's coming up. And welcome to Tuesday. You know what Tuesday means. Tuesday means Brian Stewart is by with his uh, latest commentary on the situation in Ukraine. And we're going to we're going to get right to it because it's a pretty interesting one today. We'll save our end bits for their true place at the end. An end bit belongs at the end. Sometimes it belongs at the beginning, but today it belongs at the end. Okay, our topic for today comes as a result of a I don't know, a couple of letters that I've received in the last little while, last couple of weeks. Um, I do read your mail when you send something in to uh, the Mansbridge podcast at gmail.com. I do read it. Sometimes I use some of them on air on the Your Turn on Thursday. But others that have suggestions for potential programming or potential interviews, I read those as well. Um, and... A couple in the last little while have been about this issue of mercenaries in the uh, Ukraine-Russia war, and in particular, the Wagner Group. Now, we have discussed them since the middle of last summer, uh, when Brian first brought them up, and they weren't getting a lot of ink at that point, but they sure get a lot of ink now. And while we did a couple of programs in the fall where we gave a little more detail on the Wagner Group, clearly some of you feel um, that we should do, we should update that story. We should update the profile of uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, who's the guy who formed the Wagner Group. And we should update the whole story of mercenaries in war. Because... The Ukraine war is not the only place that mercenaries are being used. And what does it say about the world today that mercenaries have become more and more evident in different parts of the world? And should we be concerned about that? Uh, One of the letters I got was from uh, Elizabeth J., who uh, wrote from Half Moon Bay in... uh, in British Columbia. Love the name of that. I mean, there are lots of half-moon bays in the world, right? Some of you have probably been to a few of them. Usually on, like, Caribbean islands, there's a half-moon bay. Because it's shaped like a half-moon. And I assume the same thing uh, goes for half-moon bay in uh, in BC. Anyway, uh, Elizabeth wanted more information. She actually wanted quite a bit more. I'm not sure we're going to be able to answer all her questions, but we are going to answer some of them and some of the others that have come in. And I'm just using Elizabeth as an example and appreciate hearing from all of you. So um, let's bring Brian in. I, I, you'll, you'll find this interesting. Uh, while the, the main portion of this uh, interview with Brian today, his commentary, is about the Wagner Group, uh, we don't start off that way. I give him a little plug because once again, he seems to be uh, ahead of the pack, so to speak. So uh, let's bring him in. My friend, your friend, foreign correspondent, the war correspondent, Brian Stewart. 
I know I sound like I, I do this every week, but I, I talk about how, how you have been sort of ahead of the curve on a lot of the issues. Not all of them, but a lot of them uh, when it comes to the story on, on Ukraine and the impact this war has had. And I notice in today's edition of The Telegraph, uh, this headline, uh, which is uh, echoes back to something you forecast, I guess it was, you know, last fall. Um, Here's the headline today. Why Poland will be Europe's next superpower. Um, I guess it was was in the fall you you told us. You said, listen, Poland is now the the new big player in in Western Europe, if not in in Europe overall. And uh, people are going to have to come to grips with that. So now that it's starting to become clear to a a lot of people, um, what's your take on, on the Poland story? Well, it's been coming, I think, for some time. It was kind of evident in, in the summer that Poland had a will to resist and a, a kind of an energy about its defense that was lacking, not particularly lacking, but much more superior to those uh, other countries in NATO. I mean, just above, it has a large population, so it can have a, a, a big army. Uh, it's got an enormously impressive military history, which the Poles are very proud of, and rightly so. Uh, I mean, Napoleon valued them very much for as fighters, and the RAF enormously valued them during the Battle of Britain as airmen. So you, you have a military uh, ethos and history. You have a strong nation that frankly feels it's been um, not respected enough in many, many recent decades. And uh, a very good army, very good military uh, currently, and has desires to grow because it needs to grow. It faces Russia. It's going to always face Russia. It has been a a traditional um, um, target of Russia. Uh, You remember 1939, it wasn't just the... Germans who invaded Poland. It was the Soviet Union that also invaded uh, Eastern Poland. Uh, so you have that mixed together. Now, mind you, you have also a, a very conservative government that sees this as a national ambition. Whether another gov- government down the road will be equally as militant, we don't know yet. And another thing we don't know is, you know, will it always be a good, friendly, good guy type of NATO superpower? Or will it start getting a bit bossy and pressy towards its neighbors and a little bit, uh, you know, um, uh, I don't know how you would call it, but uh, um, irritant towards Germany, which it has a lot of uh, obviously historical beefs about and then and geopolitical beefs so that's it i mean it's it's there it's uh, nato has to upset accept it because it's obvious and it's um it's going to be a formidable power in europe certainly northeastern europe in future and it's going to be a, the magnet around which other eastern european countries tend to gather including ukraine after this war I think we'll see a very close union between Ukraine and Poland, and that's a very big, that's a potentially very big, strong block. And how does, uh, I mean, you mentioned how Germany would might react to this. 
how about France? I mean, uh, between those two, they've always been seen as the dominant European countries on con- on the European continent. Um, if people start talking this way about Poland, which they clearly are now, how does how does that sit with France? Well, uh, you know, France has always sought uh, good relations with Poland, but uh, the reality is. Um, I don't think it's very happy. I don't think Macron is very happy to see his desire to be the, the number one statesman of Europe increasingly, you know, nudged to the side a bit by the emergence both of Germany and Poland. And I think, uh, um, I don't know how it will play itself out because who knows how Macron is going to play himself out given the turmoil in France right now. If we had a more stable government, it would be easier to, to read. But I think France will try to um, work in a power relationship with Warsaw. Uh, the Paris-Warsaw block might at, at times convince the Germans to get more serious about a Paris-Berlin-Warsaw block, which I think Paris would, would very much like because it would see itself at the center of that. Um, but we don't, the German government's very hard to read right now. The French government is very hard to read its future right now. And the Polish government is kind of emerging into a, a new super, not super, big power, geopolitical power force that uh, the world is just beginning to get its mind around. So there's a lot of uncertainties here, a lot of interesting things to watch. Okay. Uh, for Poland's sake, I'm, I'm somebody who covered Poland when it was under the Soviet Union and covered the Solidarity Movement, uh, which older uh, listeners will mem- remember. I, I, I'm very pleased to see Poland rising um, towards, you know, a kind of more respect in the world. It, it's a remarkable country, a brave country, a really brave country, and it really does deserve an awful lot of respect. And certainly nobody's been a better friend and ally of Ukraine during this war than Poland itself. I remember well your uh, visits to Poland in the early 80s, your uh, your following of Lech Wałęsa, the, the labor yeah. leader who, you know, set the headlines. And, uh, you know, on, and John Paul too, JP too, who, uh, you yeah. know, both who came, you know, were, were Polish and had a huge impact uh, on the way the world changed through the 80s and into the early 90s. Uh, really, the, the, you know, the Soviet bloc, the communist bloc really began to crack when the uh, Lech Wałęsa, the engineer, and the Solidarity Movement got together and they really started to resist in a serious way. And that sent literally chills down the spine of a lot of Eastern European communist bloc countries. And and that really was the first major step. And and as you say, the Pope's visit there, where he would get crowds of, I saw them with my own eyes, up to two million people in an open field, um, really also changed the entire atmosphere of the Cold War. I I can remember seeing... It was the 2002 Olympics. Uh, Lech Wałęsa was one of those who, who carried the flag into the stadium. You know, they always have kind of like four or eight big personalities. And um, I, I was walking down a back stairwell in the Olympic Stadium, and I was walking down and walking up was Lech Wałęsa. And I looked at this guy. I mean, it was, you know, he was a huge world figure. 
um, and, uh, and to see him in the flesh right there. I mean, you'd, you'd seen him in the flesh and, and, and talked with him back in, in the day when, when he was carrying on that fight. So anyway, you, you felt like you were in the Just presence. a very quick story on him. Yeah. I might, you can always cut it. Uh, but um, I interviewed him once for NBC and he came in and, you know, he's all in his presidential suit, but he was, you know, president by then. And, um, uh, or, or certainly the top leader, uh, and he sat down, and uh, the technician, the sound man, was having trouble with the plugs. And of course, Lech Wentz is a former electrician, a union <laughs> boss electrician. And Lech Wentz turns around, "You idiot! You put that one in there! No, 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 not that!" And he started directing the sound man and how to set up the equipment. I've never seen that from a leader ever before. <laughs> That's great. Okay, uh, let's shift discussion from Poland to uh, the main purpose of, uh, of today's chat, and that is uh, to talk about the the Wagner Group or the Wagner Group. I, you know, we, we've gone back and forth on that name, and its leader Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin, uh, the mercenary, the mercenary group, and the mercenary, the uh, the man, the mercenary. Um, we've we've talked about him quite a few times over the last year. Uh, and the impact of uh, of the mercenary group, but I've had a number of letters in the last little while saying, you know, remind us of how this actually works, uh, and it's a good time to do it because it was a crazy weekend for the uh, the Wagner group. On Saturday, they were saying we're pulling out of the battle for Bakhmut. Uh, Moscow won't support us. They're not sending us ammunition. They're this. They're that. Um, it really dumped on the basically on the Putin regime. By Sunday, they said, "Oh no, we're staying. We've got all our, we've got all our ammunition is on the way now." Um, that was a power play that clearly that clearly worked, but it kind of underlines this guy and his methods very unpredictable. Very unpredictable, and also, um, you know, this is an example. He just shook down the the Russian military. He he called the Russian military leaders by every vile name imaginable. Virtually accused them of getting his men killed, and then sort of said, "We're pulling out of here unless we get more ammunition." I mean, can you imagine in a Western army any division leader suddenly saying, we're going to leave the field unless we get more we want? So this is a sign of just how powerful the Wagner group is uh, and when it comes to power plays in Moscow. And also, it's it's a kind of sign of, you know, really the growing menace of mercenary groups worldwide. We can maybe talk about that later, but uh, Wagner Group is was set up years ago to, to pursue Russian interests in countries like Syria, Libya, and Africa. It also had a very uh, commercial uh, instinct. It was looking for you know, access to oil wells and mines and, and material uh, material gain wherever it went, like as all mercenary forces do. And it entered the Ukraine war as really the, the a really tough fighting unit made up of people who signed up as mercenaries. Uh, it wasn't part of the Russian army. It was separate from the Russian army. And it was denied by Russia to even exist for a long time. But it went in. It was a totally ruthless force. They also sent originally 50,000 into Ukraine. It lost at least half that number, which is an incredible casualty rate that, uh, you know, only shock troops of the most reckless kind uh, could could endure. Um, and basically, it uh, you know, it, it's become a real power. But it, to 
to fulfill itself, to keep filling in ranks, it went to the prisons of Russia and got out some of the worst prisoners imaginable. You know, the, the, the not only the bank robbers and the the, the mafia type groups, but also the the kill for hire and murders. You name it, were in its ranks, and they committed horrific atrocities on the front. Still are probably every day, and that's where we stand right now. As a you know, a new phenomena entering world warfare and politics, and that is a large self-confident, aggressive, perhaps megalomaniacal mercenary force that could see a lot of imitators in the world. And in fact, this just appears to be about to sign an agreement with a Chechen uh, mercenary group, the Ahmed uh, troops, and then they may be joining up with the Wagner to try and take this the city of Bakhmud that they've been trying to take since last summer, you know, and again, losing many casualties, but bit by bit getting more of the city. So that's what Wagner is. It's a, it's a real phenomenon of our time. It's a dangerous sign of our time. And um, the world, uh, you know, better look out. The guy often comes across as a clown, but look where he got to. The guy, his guy's an ex-jailbird himself. He did six years for burglary. Uh, you know, worked his way up as a, a chef and an event manager in the Kremlin, and now runs a private army, basically that even the Kremlin seems worried about. You know, when you read his story, is, him, I should say. yeah, when you read his story, it is quite remarkable. Uh, I mean, he spent most of the '80s, as you say, in jail for uh, you know breaking into apartments and uh, stealing stuff and what have you, and then and then basically started his his chef life uh, as a cook and a restaurateur, but started in the streets of Leningrad selling hot dogs. With his mother, I mean, that, that, that's a, he came out of jail to do that to, to kind of clean up his act at least publicly uh, by doing that, and then you know rose through the various levels uh, and became this confidant of uh, of Putin. But I mean, this this guy, I mean, he's got quite a history. I mean, he he was a big big time chef. At least his restaurants were big time. He served um, uh, George Bush. Uh, w uh, at a, with a special meal in uh, when when Bush was in in Moscow. Other world leaders um, uh, he he got to to know, I guess, in, in terms of his restaurant. So and then he moved on. He decided he he actually started uh, the Wagner Group um, right. and and launched it into this uh, situation that's in now um, in Ukraine, but as you said, in other areas as well. But I want to get a, an understanding of how it works. I mean, do, does do the Wagner Group decide on their own where to take their battle to? Like in Ukraine, do they, are they the ones to say, okay, we're going to go to Bakhmut, or do they work this in conjunction somehow um, with the Russian army? And who pays for them? Oh, like, where's the money come from? Yeah, they- they do uh, work it in conjunction with the uh, the Russian army. Otherwise, it'd be chaos in the front. They'd be going in where they're not wanted or whatever. But I think they pretty well say Russia is having trouble taking this city that's very important for Putin to win, particularly by May the 10th, if possible. And we're the ones to do it. And then they get involved in the fight and they lose an enormous amount. And the Russian military resents them to the absolute core, of course, because they're despised by, you know, paratroopers and others. 
Um, so there's there's enormous friction there, but they would work out where they're going to fight. They would then start demanding so much ammunition as all the different areas would say, we need this many shells, you know, to, to fire per day, that kind of thing. And sometimes they get what they want, and other times the military holds back. Uh, the money flows in overwhelmingly from Russia and uh, itself. I mean, it, it's you know, money is flowing from s- some Russian uh, budgets into their hands because they they pay quite well for Russian. They they pay a, the above average salary for a Russian worker, and that's a lot of money. It's it's not just these are guys not fighting for for nothing. These are guys that sign up because they want to make money or they want to get out of jail and make money. And when they're out of jail, they get a, a free pardon at the end of just six months service. And then they get people sign coming in from many countries in the world wanting to join up because the money is good. And uh, who knows what robbery you can pursue while you're in the front? Who knows what looting goes on? Who knows what terrorizing and protection get, uh, jobs are also uh, in play? And that's pretty well how it works. Uh, and they get money from, they, they serve in Africa. There's at any given time, at least 2,000 Wagner uh, soldiers in uh, Syria helping the regime there. And in the Central African Republic, they appear to be in, in other areas of Africa. And maybe even there's some rumors they're now starting to show up in Haiti of all things, right in the Western Hemisphere. So anyways, um, that's pretty much how it operates. How uh, uh, brutally, of course. I mean, he seems to also have a charisma that is kind of hard to understand because he's not exactly the most prepossessing-looking guy, um, but he he's got a tough guy act that is, that seems to really warm the right-wing nationalist crowds in in Moscow, and the people signing up seem to see in him some some real. Uh, you know, dark Vader, whatever kind of character who uh, they can show allegiance to and will get Russia moving on the right path towards a far more ruthless persona in the world than it has right now. Are, under international law, uh, is the use of mercenaries legal? Well, it's not protected as prisoners of war. They're not regarded. But... uh, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is it's irrelevant because the international law it can't really uh, can't really now police the growth of, of mercenary armies. They're, they're too big. They're too well armed. And here's the reality. All over the world now, new mercenary groups are springing up. They have, you know, many names, many respectable corporate names like Aegis Defense Services and Triple Canopy and lots of others we never hear of. The Middle East is supposedly awash in mercenary groups now. Some of these are getting very big. They're made up mostly of ex-service personnel. And they're they're finding a lot of countries are finding it's a lot cheaper to hire a mercenary army than it is to have your own army and and own it because uh, that's very expensive but you can bring in a mercenary army to fight a war for maybe a year and a half conquer your enemies and then send it home hopefully uh, they'll go uh, this is a real reality another reality which i mentioned several times on this show and i think it's one of the fundamental political, international political realities of this era, and that is 
democracies are very casualty averse. They don't want to be losing their own citizens in conflicts. Notice how Canada has pretty well dropped out of peacekeeping, for example, how the United States has become, uh, for the first time and maybe in our lives, really hesitant to go into places uh, to clean up a mess, Haiti being an example. The British and the Europeans are increasingly hesitant too. So countries will see they have more, when they get a mercenary group of some size and they give it a flow of income that is really important and they can get top weapons, what democracies are going to go in and clean out a country of its mercenary forces? Take one example. Here's an example. In the world of 196 countries, international bodies like the World Bank figure there's 50 countries that are failed states. They're failed or failing. They're so failed that basically uh, they're they're almost anarchy. Uh, they're, they're, nothing is sort of working. How easy would it be for a major uh, mercenary company, corporation, or an alliance of several mercenary companies to, for instance, start taking over certain countries? Countries like Haiti is a classic example go in, suppress the gangs that are there, put them down, give a kind of order to the country that most citizens would regard as with a, a, a breath of fresh air, a kind of liberation almost, and then make what money from whatever way, ways they can. Drugs come instantly to mind, uh, a whole international network opening up there, or islands here and there. Or a country in Africa, perhaps even a major country with mines and oil stakes could be taken over by a series of mercenary forces. And there's they've not been stopped because who's going to stop them? Are you going to send in the U.S. Marines to, uh, to a country to wipe out the mercenary force? Uh, what would the citizens make of that? Why are we going in there? You know, what, what would the U.S. Congress make of suddenly going to the Central African country to try and take out a mercenary force of well-armed ex-soldiers of, say, 1,000 to 1,500 strength? That means kind of real fighting. Uh, so it's a worrisome thing that God, the, the world has to start thinking about. Is there a way to regulate these mercenary forces? Um, maybe not. I mean, mercenary armies have been common in the world for 4,000 years. They were through the Middle Ages, the main military forces. Um, really, up until 200 years ago, um, it was an honorable thing to serve in a mercenary army. You know, maybe we're drifting back towards that when people will see more uh, opening for themselves in life to serve for a mercenary army and make a good paycheck than going into a national army and sitting around doing nothing um, and, and not making all that much money. Any all, evidence, all these are, are words. Any evidence that the Ukrainians have mercenary uh, soldiers? Oh, they have, yeah. They have an international legion, um, which some people, you know, it's, it's, you can compare with, say, the French Foreign Legion, but actually it's very different. This International Legion in uh, Ukraine, which at certain times it had up to five or 6,000 soldiers, uh, was uh, formed on the urging of Valensky, Valensky to get foreign troops in to invite people to come and fight for Ukraine. And many signed up. Many signed up for 
um, the you know the chance of action. Many were ex-soldiers who believed in Ukraine's fight against tyranny, uh, and, and uh, some of them just came for the the thrill of being in war. Um, they're not like the French Foreign Legion, which takes people in and only gives and, and they only accept them after a very very long and rigorous training and at the end they don't pay them all that well but at the end of service in the french foreign legion you get french citizenship no matter where you're from and nobody asks too much about your background so that's not checked either and that's that's a big selling point to a lot of people who figure they can work in the french foreign legion suffer some hardship for some years and then have french citizenship and a clean slate in ukraine these people are invited in to fight for money i'm not sure how much they're paying now but they were paying not a bad uh, buck and then they uh, they fight and it's it tends to turn out that some of them are really good They've had excellent military background. They perform courageously. As two Canadians were killed not recent, not long ago, fighting in Bakhmut for that same International Legion. So some are good and earn the respect of their mates. Many are not that good. Many are sent home because they they're basically the military skills they they boasted of were. Uh, were not simply not there and they didn't they lacked the will to really fight it out when the going got extremely tough and in ukraine it is extremely tough okay i i i'm just a little confused by that because I, i'm trying to determine how that that fits under the term mercenary because it almost sounds like they're part of the regular army just in a separate regiment kind of thing well, it is a separate regiment. Uh, it's mercenary because these are uh, so soldiers not fighting, not Ukrainian soldiers fighting for Ukraine. They are expeditionary forces that were hired abroad to come and fight in a foreign war and are paid to do so. Whether or not they, they think the money's all that great is, is, is secondary. It's, it's, they are certainly paid to do so. And they are not Ukrainian soldiers. They are foreign soldiers. And that's one of the things that uh, makes defines a, a mercenary. They, they fight for profit, not for politics overall. They're structured really as a personal business. And uh, they have lethal skills. And they fight not at home. But abroad, they're different from, let's say, security guards who would protect a, a major shopping center or something like that. These are people who go abroad to fight in a military force with lethal force uh, attached to it. Um, last question, and it's back to our uh, the man, Prigozhin, Evgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group. Do you think he has ambitions beyond what we're seeing now does he want to be does he want to be the power broker does he want to be a political leader does he want to does he want putin's job almost certainly i think he has all the signs of megalomania uh and, and megalomaniacs are, are not usually uh shy when it comes to ambition and i think it's natural for him to be sitting the, the kind of guy he is it's quite natural for him to say this is not a strong government right now my good pal putin is earning a lot of the uh, you know contempt quiet contempt uh, for the most part but not always quiet of the right-wing nationalist force in russia which i would really like to corral and mobilize and galvanize to make this a, a really 
I have to I have to use the word a more fascist country, a more kind of totalitarian state militaristic country. I think that's very much part of his ambition. I can't see what else he wants. He once tried writing a children's book, but I don't think that's really where his talent or his ambitions really lie. Uh, no, I think he's, he's he's got his eye on either being the central power broker and feared as such, or in fact, somebody, if Russia falls into chaos, that the the right, the conservative elements of Russia would turn to as a man, that sort of De Gaulle figure, maybe a man in an emergency to take over the state. He probably has those thoughts going through his mind all the time. What a resume. He goes from like con, con, convict to, to hot dog seller to a friend of the president to the leader of a uh, of an army of uh, thugs and murderers. I, I mean, it's like it's it's quite the quite the list. Um, all right, Brian, we're going to call it a day for uh, for that one. We appreciate uh, your time on this as always, and look forward to talking to you next week. Pleasure, thank you, Brian Stewart, with us again, um, and as he is on all Tuesdays, um, almost since the beginning of the uh, conflict, uh, which is now you know we're coming up on. Well, we're not a year and a half yet, but it won't be long before we are for the uh, conflict in Ukraine. Um, and his, you know, every once in a while, it's it's good to put the kind of brakes on and uh, delve into one particular area, which is basically what we did today on the the whole issue of the Wagner Group and the, you know, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, um, just who he is and what impact he has beyond Ukraine. And clearly there is an impact. Uh, not only of he and his group, but the whole idea of mercenaries. When Brian talks about, can you imagine the mercenaries in Haiti dealing with that situation? That could very easily turn into a um, a mercenary-run state. Uh, anyway, we'll uh, we'll see what happens there. Um, okay, that uh, that brings our uh, main segment of the program to uh, to a uh, a halt for now. Uh, there is some, you know, I, <laughs> I promised an end bit, and an end bit we will get. But first of all, this quick break. And welcome back, Peter Mansbridge here. You're listening to The Bridge on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Tomorrow on uh, The Bridge, The Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth, Bruce Anderson will join us. And uh, Wednesdays, as we do on Fridays as well, the program is also available on our YouTube channel. And uh, it's interesting to see each week. Uh, We just do those two shows on uh, YouTube. But it's interesting that each week the uh, the audience gets uh, larger on the YouTube channel, and there are uh, a lot of people like to comment. And while there are the odd uh, bots and uh, and and trolls, uh, the vast majority of uh, uh, of those comments like the ones that come directly to the podcast for use on your turn. Many of those comments are are you know are really good in the sense they bring up interesting ideas and topics. So uh, I appreciate hearing from you on that. Okay, I promised an end bit. And here we go. Um, This was a headline 
last week in the uh, Daily Mail in the UK. And, uh, well, let me just give you the headline first. Out-of-control rockets and spacecraft could become deadly. A scientist warned there's a 10% chance falling debris will kill someone within the next decade. Okay, let's think about that. If there's a 10% chance that it will kill somebody in the next decade, that means there's a 90% chance it won't. Now, having said that, 10% is still an interesting number. It's the kind of thing that makes you want to look up. <laughs> you got to be quick, though. Um, but it does raise the question, okay, seriously, how much stuff is there up there? How worried should we be? Well, you know, something crashed to Earth last week. It was, um, I'm not sure whose satellite it was. I think it was a Russian satellite. Russian spacecraft back from the uh, 90s. No, pardon me. Excuse me. Sorry, Russia. It wasn't one of yours. It was an American satellite. It was a NASA satellite. Crashed back to Earth last week amid warnings that it had a 1 in 2,500 chance of killing someone. Those are pretty good odds, too. But instead, it crashed into Earth. And what's interesting when you think about it, you know, the majority of Earth is water, right? And you figure, odds are it's going to hit water. Well, it didn't hit water. It hit land. Well, kind of a land. It hit the Sahara Desert, somewhere between Sudan and Egypt. (laughs) That's a fair chunk of land, right? But in the Sahara, there is a crashed NASA satellite. My bet is uh, NASA is probably trying to figure out a way of finding that. But back to the question, how much stuff is there up there? Well, you'd be surprised. <laughs> there's, there's a heck of a lot of stuff up there. And eventually it'll turn into, most of it anyway, will turn into junk. Now, it could be centuries or longer before some of it ever falls. But some things are going to fall. There's a... There's a website called Leo Labs, L-E-O-L-A-B-S, that is operated in conjunction with NASA. And I'm looking at one of their their, uh, um, visuals, and it's the Earth from space, uh, but all the satellites and space junk around it. And there's a lot. It looks like a diseased ball, right? There's all this stuff sort of orbiting around it. So, okay, that's very interesting, Peter, but really, how much stuff? Give me numbers. Tell me what you're talking about. Okay, I'll do that. Because that's the kind of people we are here at the bridge. We're on top of the story. How many items are there in orbit? This is from the European Space Agency. Well, first of all, you got to go by the rockets launched since 1957. Sputnik, right? How many rockets have been launched since 1957 that went up into space? 6,380. 
the number of satellites in orbit around the Earth. 15,430. That's how many were sent into orbit. How many are still there in orbit or in space? 10,290. The number still functioning. 33,050. I'm sorry. The number still functioning, 7,500 of the 10,290. So there are a bunch of dead satellites up there that don't do anything, but they're still in orbit. But the ones that are still functioning, there are 7,500 of them. The number of debris objects, that's the 33,050 figure. That's pieces of debris from, you know, spaceships that, uh, you know, blew up in space or had some kind of accident or started to, um, you know, fall apart. Mass of objects in orbit. So the total weight of everything that's up there. 10,800 tons. Prediction of the amount of debris in orbit using statistical models. <laughs> this, is, this is interesting. Just so you know, that piece that's heading towards you or your garden or your cottage or your roof or whatever, the number that are over 10 centimeters, I guess, in length. 36,500. But listen to this number. The number of pieces that are between 1 centimeter and 10 centimeters. Take a guess. It's a piece of space junk somewhere between 1 centimeter and 10 centimeters. 1 million. There are a million pieces like that. You still don't want to be hit by that. Nor do you even want to be hit by something that's between one millimeter and one centimeter. Right? So that's pretty small. One millimeter and one centimeter. Take a guess. How many pieces do you think there are out there? Orbiting the Earth and eventually going to come down. 130 million pieces. Now, I'm telling you, the bridge, it gives you the information you need when you decide to venture out of your house, walk down the street. Now you know what's up there and what eventually is going to come down. Now, mind you, when it comes down from that height, no matter what size it is, you don't have to be walking outside. It'll go right through your roof, I'm sure. Now, I'm not a scientist, so I, I don't know that for a fact. And if I've unduly scared you, I didn't mean to. Remember, most stuff's going to fall in the water, right? Okay. I've given you something to think about. Don't ever say I don't give you things to think about. Because there you go. Tomorrow, Wednesday, smoke, mirrors, and the truth. Bruce Anderson joins us. Not sure what we're going to talk about. There's always things to talk about. And we'll find one or two, or maybe even three tomorrow. So take care. Thanks for listening on this day. And we'll talk to you again in 24 hours.